Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray and ask the Lord to illumine this text to our understanding and benefit. Lord, we thank you and praise you for your holy word. It is true. It is illuminating. It reveals the very truths of God for our salvation. It shows us the depths of man's depravity and the heights of God's glory. And Lord, we ask that you would open it up to us this morning, that you would help us to see and hear and understand your word, Lord, that we might find the true answer to life's deep and profound problems. We pray all these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we come to this text, what I want us to think about is... um, kind of some of the things we've been learning over the last few weeks and thinking about why we're looking at the book of Genesis to begin with. One of the things we've been seeing and clearly becoming aware of, if we weren't already, is is that we live in a world where longing, lack, and frustration are norm. And it's easy to think, well, how can that be? We live in a very prosperous um, nation. But it doesn't really matter whether you're a person who is struggling financially, or struggling relationally, struggling emotionally. As we talked to some degree over the last few weeks, we talked about the fact that even for people that everything seems to be going great, there's just that sinking suspicion that you just don't feel completely comfortable in your skin. It just, you're just, it's hard to come to a place where everything's just okay. It's just fine. Um, no matter how much society wants to tell us that they're okay and we're okay, There's something inside of us that won't let that remain unchallenged. Part of how we know this is where we know something is wrong is that what we had placed as a culture and a society our faith in, namely science, technology, and government over the last hundred years, has not solved the problems of war, famine, and disease. People around us, both in and outside the church, are disillusioned. Because these things were supposed to be what was going to help. The modern experiment was going to solve the problems. We had hope, and that hope has been displaced because we're becoming more and more, even those who have taught us for years that man is inherently good, are even becoming unwilling to say that any longer. There are even those in the academy who are saying, no, evil, wickedness, is part of the evolutionary process. That man is inherently evil, and that's just part of how he has evolved. So even within the structures 
of modern science, even within those who would profess a certain level of social engineering, they themselves are turning in on themselves to say, our biggest problem is us. It's not the big bad world. It's not the fact that there are bad parents. It's not a bad self-image. The problem really is evil. Which, if you have nothing but yourself, if it's nothing but an evolutionary process, hope goes right out the window. What hope can there possibly be? The next thing that we need to understand and look at is the fact that love has become, in our culture, in our society, in our world, primarily associated with a feeling or an experience because the idea of something more is just too painful and is best left to Disney movies and a good chick flick. The idea of really having that one true love is the fantasy of the Princess Bride. It's the joy that's seen in Sleeping Beauty. But it is not something that you should spend a whole lot of your time hoping for, even though we know that many people do. But in reality, people are trying to build up an ability to just deal with it when those things don't pan out. When the one you thought that was going to treasure you forever decided that somebody else would treasure him more or was more worth his time. Where the woman who said that it was you and no other, ten years down the road, said, well, my needs have changed. And therefore, I need to find another lover, a different lover. Or I need to find many lovers because there's not just one that's going to be able to satisfy. And so we find the fact that, in a real sense, that faith has been driven out Hope has been lost, and love seems fleeting. And yet those are three things that we seem to value and prize. And as we begin to look at this particular passage, what I want us to understand is that this is why Genesis becomes so important to consider. Because amazingly, while the world is finding itself short of answers and frustrated, Genesis continues to speak out and say, there is an answer for the things that society can't cure. There is an answer to the things that science can't discover. There is an answer to the things that culture cannot provide. Here we see not just a story to look at and to consider and to say, wow, that's really nice. But here is history itself being laid out before us. And so as we come this morning, I want us to consider how this passage begins to open us up, crack us open a little bit, and begins to maybe answer some of the questions that some of us may just be a little too religious to ask. I mean, we'll say them in our hearts, but we never open ourselves up to say, I really am disillusioned with life. My faith is waxing and waning. We, after all, if Mother Teresa can somehow lose her faith, what hope is there for the rest of us, Right? There's a sense in which I want us to begin to wrestle and begin to understand and unpack the fact that we have a true answer here. And in this text this morning before us, it begins to draw us ever more deeply into it. The first thing I want us to look at in this passage, I want to look at verse 20. 
I want you to look at what happens here, and we're going to look at a couple other places here, but this is the concept in this passage, this section we're looking at, that happens here. What happens here is a restoration of faith and hope. And it's really interesting that right in verse 20, you begin to see throughout this passage, which seems to any cursory reading, I mean, these people are being driven out. They're being cut off. They're being, how in the world could you look here and say, oh, well, there's hope all over this section. And you think, well, where's hope when you're being cut off, guards being set? Language like driven out are stated. And here's what I want you to think about. In verse 20, it says, The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Now, if you were to go and look at a variety of, of, of commentaries or you were to go and look at things that have been written about this, and it is surprising how much of late is being written on the book of Genesis, but one of the things you would start to hear people say is, well, this is a clear example of, of the man dominating the woman. That's what's really going on. How does this bring hope? Well, it doesn't bring any because Adam, that arrogant man that he is, dared to name his wife and therefore treat her like an animal. He named the animals, didn't he? And here's Eve being named, Eve, by this dominant male. Another aspect you might hear people look at this passage and say is, well, what's really going on here is that Adam is just being incredibly presumptuous. I mean, after all, naming her the mother of the living, the bringer of death, I mean, after all, Eve is the one that ate from the fruit and gave it to her husband. I mean, her name should be something like death, not life. It seems rather presumptuous that that Adam would give her the title of mother of all the living. But I want you to begin to think about what's being said here and remember that Genesis wasn't being written for Adam and Eve. Genesis was being written for people who were sitting on the other side of the Red Sea after having watched Pharaoh and all his army washed out. And they're standing on the other side and Moses is writing to them and letting them know where they came from and why they are now where they are. And so if you keep that in mind, realize that what's being said here is, is that Eve is the mother of all the living because of the fact that procreation was not removed. And remember, we've talked about the fact that God told them originally to be fruitful and, mul- and multiply. Part of who human beings are is this reproducing of ourselves. And you see that God doesn't remove that. In fact, Adam, believing that that's still part of who he is, that somehow that hasn't been destroyed, names his wife Eve. In other words, we're going to have more of us. This is not the end of us. And do you see how that begins to give us some sense of hope? Because Men and women, we all know, as we look around this room even, there are those of us that just by our exterior show forth the signs that we're closer to the grave than not. We're heading there. And we all know that the great tragedy of all parents is is talked about by King Theoden when he says, no father should bury his son. 
So we, we, we know that somehow having offspring gives us a sense of we're moving forward. That, that even if death comes, that's not the end of the story. That there's somebody else to carry on the story. And so we see that Adam has a sensibility about him saying, God called us to procreate and that hasn't been removed. Eve is the mother of all the living. The second thing I want you to notice then in in this overall text is that God sends him out. Look at verse 23 and it says, And the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And you might say, well, yeah, he sent him out to work the ground and and he's cursed the ground and it's going to really be a pain and it's going to be a problem and thorns and thistles are growing there and that doesn't seem to be any favor. But if you remember back what we talked about, that work was not something that God invented after man had sinned and fallen, but work was something that actually was a very means of providing dignity and purpose and calling and value in life, you realize that when God sends him out, although the curse is in place, the ground is going to work against him. Life is going to be difficult. The reality is that the sweat of your brow is going to be the means by which you actually live out now your purpose and calling. The fact is, is that you still have a purpose and a calling. And that may seem very small, but do you understand, folks, that one of the greatest forms of torture is basically to put somebody in a a room for no reason and just leave them there, isolated, with no purpose. For those of you that are fans of Cool Hand Luke and Paul Newman, you, you, you you know what the boss does, right? Why is this dirt in boss's hole? Luke, get the dirt out of boss's hole. Digs all the dirt out and digs a hole. Luke, why is this dirt not in boss's hole? Put the dirt back in boss's hole. Back and forth. Back and forth. Monotony. No reason. No purpose. No calling. You understand, you start to see that what's really being said here is much more powerful than a cursory reading might give you. If you just kind of read through it, you go, okay, Adam gets sent out. He's got to go work by the sweat of his brow. Life's going to be a big hassle and a big problem. But that's not all that's being said here. We, we heard that. We, we see that earlier in Genesis. We understand that's what's going on. But do you understand that God does not remove from Adam calling and purpose. He gives him a reason for getting up in the morning. There's ground to be plowed. There's seed to be sowed. There's a reason for getting up and shining the brass on what appears to be a sinking ship. And do you understand how that begins to give people a sense of faith and hope? All is not lost. If I'm not the... if. If the reality of life doesn't die with Eve and I, and if I leave this garden but I still have some reason for doing what I'm doing, then faith and hope is not lost. And see, that becomes incredibly important for us, doesn't it? Because isn't there a sense in which if we're just doing this to only go to the dirt, what's the point? If that's all that's there, why bother? If there's no hope that something might change, why get up anymore? 
As I've said in the past, if faith and hope are lost, the most logical thing to do is to kill yourself. What possible reason is there to go on if you're just an amoeba lost in the midst of a vast universe? Eking out an existence. What possible reason can there be to go on? And don't you understand that most people continue to try and create a false reason for getting up because in reality what they believe is there is no purpose. They've been told that their whole lives. There's no purpose. All there is is get what you can get while you can get it. And anyone who has gotten all they can get, by the time especially they get to 30 or 40 years old, life begins to become way too real to continue to personify those lies. And so you either have to start coming up with new ones or else what's the purpose? Some young people just get there a lot quicker. The cynicism of the age helps them get there at 16 or 17. What's the reason? What's the purpose? Why go on? And what I want you to see is that Genesis begins to say, I'll tell you the reason. Because you weren't made without calling and purpose. And just because you fouled up, God has not removed that from you. As we've talked about, the fact is, once you remove God from the equation, don't you see how everything just falls apart? Once you can get God out of the situation, there is no hope. There is nothing to really have faith in. Having faith in faith does not get you anywhere. And so we see in this passage that faith and hope are operative. There's something more here, but I'll save that for a little bit later. The next thing I want us to look at is is the idea of shame and longing. And that's why I read verses 7 and 8. I want us to go back there and look once again and see that when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, The Scriptures tell us the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The idea of nakedness, if you want to kind of begin to think about this, I want want you to think about this. Think about, and you probably all have either experienced this yourselves and have had the privilege of walking in on somebody and watching how they've experienced it, and that's this. The cookies have been made. They're in the cookie jar or they're on the counter cooling. Mom has said you can have cookies after dinner. And everybody has conveniently left the kitchen. And you walk into the kitchen and you've checked to make sure that everybody is at a good distance and maybe even have laid down some toys in the way so if anyone comes, they're going to trip over. No ideas for you children. (laughs) And there you are. Your hand is out. You've got the cookie. It's almost to your lips. And mom says, what do you think you're doing? (laughs) That's nakedness. Caught red-handed. What can be your excuse? You know, if you could have just shoved it in your mouth and ran out the back door, you could blame the dog. You could, you could talk about, you know, imaginary mice that just, you've seen them in the past. You've been sitting there eating your sandwich and all of a sudden it's disappeared. 
You know the gnomes are there even if you can't see them. But if you're caught with it in your hand, you're exposed. No excuse will get you off. There's nowhere to run. And see, that's what Adam and Eve felt like. The eyes of both of them were opened and they said, we've been caught red-handed with the fruit. Another way to get at that sense of, of this idea is this, and maybe this will be a more sophisticated way of getting at the same thing, that idea is this. A sense that we're exposed without any way of controlling the subject matter or controlling the spin of how that subject matter is going to get read. I don't know how much Bill O'Reilly's ability to live in a no-spin zone is, and I'll leave that for you to assess, those of you who listen to him. But when you're with God, when God shows up, what the text is telling us is Adam and Eve are really and truly in a no-spin zone. There is no ability to turn the story. No matter who you try to shift the blame to, it won't work. Because you are naked. And see, and you know it. And so we see then that as the text unfolds there in 7 and 8, what do we see? We see that Adam and Eve, knowing this, sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And I want you to understand this very clearly in a very practical way. Growing up in Memphis, Tennessee, like I did, my wife and I bought a house when we first got married, and out on the side of that house grew a gigantically enormous fig leaf. And I want you to understand, our fig trees, and I want you to understand that fig leaves really are big. I mean, on our fig tree anyway, I mean, those leaves could get that big. They're huge. So you can just imagine, you know, you get some, you get some thread and you sew five, six, seven of those. I mean, you could make a pretty nice skirt, but here's the problem with fig leaves. When you live in a very humid environment and you cut the fig leaf off, you have about a good maybe 30 minutes of wear before the humidity begins to roll that fig leaf up. And all you're left with is a string that used to be leaves of a, of a fig leaf. And, you know, it might even help us understand why native peoples just basically quit worrying about anything but a string. You know, they're basically, if i got a string on, I'm not naked anymore. Because that's all you're left with if you sew fig leaves together is eventually it just curls right up. It doesn't work very well for a covering. And that's really important here in this text because we're seeing that here are two people who say we're, in, we're shamed, we're naked, we're exposed, we're uncovered. And even what we try to do to cover ourselves doesn't work. What are we going to do? And the second thing that this text then draws us to is the idea of longing. And how that's unpacked is the whole issue with the tree. Look at what the Lord says here. He says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand. Do you hear longing? Lest he reach out. He's longing, so there's that fruit. He wants to grab that fruit. 
and eat of it and live forever. And the text is right if you've got an English Standard Version where it just kind of leaves you hanging, lest he reach out and grab the fruit and eat of it and live forever. And it just kind of leaves you there. The reason why is because there's a sense in which the tree does not so much represent longevity when it talks about live forever. The idea of living forever is what the problem is. What if Adam lives forever? What if Adam in his fallen state lives forever? If he can eat from the tree, what happens? He lives forever. Forever in what condition? Longing. Wanting. Wishing. Without any hope of resolution. Can you imagine how horrible an existence that could possibly be? But I want you to notice that what is really beginning here is this whole idea of that tree is not so much length of life, but what man is really longing for is wholeness of life, fullness of life, abundance of life. It's not merely just about living a long, long time. What Adam really is reaching for is, I want to somehow get back what I lost. I want to somehow find fullness of life. I want to have it abundantly. I want somehow to get back to the idea of shalom, which is peace, wholeness, wellness. And what we see here in this text is that God says, I will not let him do that. And here's what happens to us. Our great frustration in life is we know that behind the curtain of our fleeting experiences is a tree. See, that's why we're always dissatisfied. Don't you know that? Don't you understand that? Don't you know that when you first meet that person? I mean, you've all done this, haven't you? You meet that person and, and you have this great conversation and then you get back together with them two days later in class and you try to recreate that moment and somehow the magic is gone. You go out on that date somehow to end all dates and, and you keep hoping that somehow that that person is going to continue to be the person you thought you dated and then you wake up on your wedding day after your wedding day and all of a sudden you're faced with a person that somehow is as much familiar as they are an enigma. And the, the longer you live with them, the less all these hopes and dreams that you had thought for don't seem to always be panning out. Somehow they are able to think ways that you never anticipated. They think, they do things. You have no idea why they do them. And heaven forbid that they can't explain to you why they do things that you don't understand. But we all know that that happens. See, somehow behind it, we keep waiting for all this stuff, that career, that marriage, that hobby, that whatever you want to put in its place, we keep longing for somehow that to fill the gap. There's got to be something I can get a hold of that will fill the longing. And it doesn't. And we keep running after it. Because surely it's got to be there. 
And don't you understand? Don't you look around? Don't you see people doing this all the time? Don't you realize that even though you might try to say, well, that's not what I do, don't you understand that you, even in this church, we live underneath, at least sometimes, the idea that the grass must be greener somewhere else. It's got to be. This can't be all there is. This can't be all there is. Surely there's got to be a better job. If I could just get that promotion, if I could just meet that person, if my wife could just stop doing X, if my husband would just be able to do Y, if my friends could just understand how bad this situation hurts me. Do you you understand that? Behind all of that is the knowledge that everybody has that there's a tree. There's wholeness and wellness but they can't reach it. And all the stuff they grab hold of does not take its place. There is this sense of longing. And then you understand now why everything we do and every way we live, do you understand what you do to your stuff? Your career? Your family? Your children? Your hobbies? your looks. See, whatever it is for you, don't you understand what that becomes? It never can be anything that brings you joy. It can never be anything that ultimately you get because ultimately what it does for you is it owns you, which means that some sinking way you hate it. You hate it. It becomes like a ring around your neck that you want with everything you've got but you hate its very existence and wish it would be destroyed. And that's what these things become for us. What we end up doing is not really loving things. We end up using them. The final thing I want us to look at then is love and justice in this last part. God keeps them from the tree and drives them out because of the need for justice, but also because of his love. Adam and Eve had learned about the knowledge of good and evil experientially. This was the dupe of the serpent, right? The serpent said, you know, if you eat of a tree of the knowledge, you'll be just like God, knowing good and evil. Here's the problem. There are lots of ways to know about things, right? I mean, I can know, I can read in a book about what it's like to jump out of an airplane. I can watch a movie about people who jump out of airplanes. I can do all kinds of things. That doesn't mean I necessarily ever have a desire to jump out of an airplane. Does that make sense what I'm saying to you? The idea here is that Adam and Eve had laid before them the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat, you will be like God. You will know it. But don't you understand that God knew the difference between good and evil, and yet he didn't have to eat of the fruit to find it out. So Satan wasn't lying when he said, if you eat, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. The problem is, it's like this. I can read all about what happens to a person if they had AIDS. How many of you want to get HIV so you can know what it's like to have AIDS? That's exactly what Adam and Eve did. That's exactly what the serpent held out to them. You can be like God knowing what full-blown AIDS is like. All you got to do is eat. And they ate. 
Do you see the lie? Do you see the dupe? And now do you see what God does? He says, lest he do something worse to himself, lest he cut himself off from the cure, we must drive him out. He must be sent out. Because justice has got to be done, but love cannot be abandoned. And what we see as we start to look at the end of this passage, and as we look all along, is this fact that the dilemma is being dealt with in this way. Look at that last verse. He drove out the man at the east end of the, gar- of the east of the Garden of Eden. He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And here's what's happening here. At the very end, what you have is this. Cherubim always mean holiness. They always mean righteousness. They're always there when you're talking about the presence of that which is most pure and that which is most righteous and holy. And everywhere in the Bible that you hear about a sword, it always has to do with justice. And what you see here at the end of this section is the fact that God is saying, the only way you get to the tree of life is through perfect righteousness and underneath the sword. The only way you get back is to be holy and for something to die. Something's got to die. Blood has got to be shed. Justice has to be met. Righteousness has to be fulfilled. And the interesting thing is, if you see that and you understand that that's what the text is leading us to, then when you get to... Matthew 121, you go, oh, now I see. You see, what do we hear there? We hear of a man betrothed to a woman who's got a child inside of her that he had nothing to do with. In fact, no man can be found on this planet that had anything to do with. Somehow the woman seems to have impregnated herself. And he's told by angels in a dream, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all of a sudden it starts to dawn on you that why Adam ultimately named Eve, or at least why we're told he named her Eve, is not just about procreation for procreation's sake, but it was procreation so that there would come a seed of the woman. What we see ultimately is that Adam shows and demonstrates faith in God's promise that he would send forth one who would crush the serpent's head, who would do something about death. And then we come to Mark chapter 1. And we look at verses there in 12 and 13, and it says to us that there's one who was driven out. And Mark's the only gospel that you read that the Spirit of God drove Jesus out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and he was surrounded by wild beasts. And who does that maybe sound like but Adam, driven out, 
no longer to have harmony with the animals that he had been put over. Tempted by the devil under condemnation, and what we see in this story is the reality is that there's one who was driven out so that we might have access back in. And when we get to the end of all the Gospels, we find that there's a tree. And we find that there's one hanging on it. And we find there's one that's exposed and naked and humiliated. And there's no way to spin it. It is what it is. An innocent man hung on a tree. And yet what are we told? We're told that that righteous one who spilt that blood on that tree gives us access into the Holy of Holies. That's why we see that curtain ripped wide open. See, what's going on here really is the reality that going out of Eden may look like the worst thing ever. Living life right now may look like the worst thing ever. But the reality is that we are not people without hope. We are not people who have nothing to put our faith in. Because we are people who have watched a history unfold and seen God's love poured out and demonstrated. And you see it right here in this passage. God loved Adam and Eve so much that He drove them out of the garden so that by righteousness and the sword, they might have life and have that life abundantly. And we have access to that this morning as well through the person and work of Christ. Now we're about to come to this table and be reminded once again that a body was broken, that blood was spilled out for the very purpose of giving people access to a person, namely Jesus, who gives us wholeness and wellness and life. And He calls and says, all who will come, come. All who are heavy laden and burdened, come to me and I will give you rest. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you and praise you for your mercy and grace. We thank you for your love and charity to us. We thank you that even in the midst of facing death, as Adam did and as all of us do, that looms in our future if you should tarry. Lord, would you give us faith in you so that we might trust you and know that even when the perplexities of life come against us, that we have no reason to lose hope. Lord, give us hope in the promise that you have come, that you have kept your promises, that you have fulfilled them in the person of Christ. And Lord, may we, as those who've experienced love, true love, love that really plums the depths of our hearts, be able to love others, not to be users, but caretakers, lovers, tenders of gardens, rather than exploiters and abusers. Lord, we pray that we would see the hope the person that we have to put our faith in and the love which has been demonstrated to us in the person of Jesus. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.